Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. I think for most of us, we can recognize that nudity or sexual acts may not qualify as newsworthiness. Any other surprising cases for our audience? Sure. So after the whole Kogan decision came down, my theory is that it, because there had been this tradition of protection for media, most plaintiff's attorneys, I believe, thought to themselves, there's no point in bringing an invasion of privacy claim against media. Media's going to win. Exactly. Media's going to win. Then when Hulk Hogan wins this massive judgment against Gawker, the Gawker website, I think that plaintiff's attorneys became more emboldened and understood like, oh, well, maybe this publication of private facts tort has validity. So maybe it's worth being more creative. Yes, right. With their with their claims. Sure. That's exactly right. And so interestingly, a few months after the Hulk Hogan decision, Jason Pierre Paul, who was a New York Giants football player and still is in the NFL, but not playing for the Giants. He was apparently at, involved with some fireworks that went off and he went to the hospital. There was big discussion about what might have happened to Jason Pierre Paul and ESPN learned that in fact he, his finger had been amputated. So that Jason Pierre Paul's finger was amputated uh, at the hospital. ESPN then tweeted out that information and included a a copy of Jason Pierre Paul's medical chart. Now, the medical chart didn't reveal much of anything. It just said that his finger had been amputated. It said his name. It suggested what sort of surgery had been done on him. That's all that the medical chart uh, released or included. So ESPN tweets this out. Jason Pierre Paul is mortified and brings then a publication of private facts claim against ESPN. And a court decides that he has a valid claim. So in fact, what the court suggested was that- What was the private information? The private information was the medical chart itself. And so even though the information about the amputation was newsworthy, everyone at the time wanted to know what happened to Jason Pierre Paul? Why is he in the hospital? So the amputation itself was newsworthy. What the court suggested was that the use of the medical chart in addition to that may have, in fact, gone farther than allowed. Right. Exactly right. And But here we have an athlete whose hands are watched by millions. Exactly right. And you would imagine his fans would be be very eager to know, is he okay? Are his hands permanently changed? That's exactly right. And that's what the court suggested. The court suggested that the information about the amputation was newsworthy, but that addition of the medical chart just went too far, conceivably, right? So, and the court said one of the reasons why it felt that this would be true and why it might in fact be heard by a jury one day uh, is because of the Health Privacy Act, the HIPAA Act. And so the court said, we as a society have decided that certain things are kept private. And HIPAA proves then that medical charts, medical information in that way. Even if it's nothing particularly 
unique or exactly. Non-public? Now, I should say the case never went to a jury because it settled immediately after that decision came down. Uh, and so therefore, that's never been decided by a court specifically. But I can tell you that, again, traditionally, that sort of level of health information could, in fact, become the basis of a publication of private facts claim, because traditionally, that's also sort of one of the areas that's been protected. Not always, but sometimes. Also, after that case came down, Floyd Mayweather, who's a boxer. Uh, one of the most winning boxers of all time. He then tweeted out an image of a, a sonogram that was a picture of two fetuses. And he tweeted that this was the reason why he and his girlfriend had broken up was because she had had an abortion. She wow. then brought a publication of private facts claim against Floyd Mayweather. And the court decided once again that information, I believe, I don't know that she's ever suggested that she had an abortion, but the court said that if in fact she had had an abortion and that that was the information that the couple had broken, that was the reason the couple had broken up, that information was allowed to be published because that information was newsworthy. But the picture of the sonogram went too far. There's obviously sexual activity is very private. Decisions around childbirth, incredibly personal, incredibly private. Mm -hmm. Here we have a potentially one of the parents publishing that information, but I would imagine if it was a third party, that would be considered not newsworthy. Right, and, and well, it would depend on the information because again, if all we're talking about is that a Hollywood celebrity is pregnant, that information would be newsworthy. It would be allowed. It would be newsworthy, absolutely. Because number one, the argument would be it's not really private at some point anyway. Because everyone uh, can see your show. Exactly. Pregnancy itself being revealed is not highly offensive to a reasonable person traditionally. What if it's, what if it's the first trimester, you know, week three, they haven't even told their family yet? Even so, a court would very likely decide that that information should be allowed to be published. And you can imagine a tabloid being willing to pay top oh, dollar for it. Of course, but now if a tabloid, it seems, published in addition proof, meaning published in addition a medical chart proving that in fact the celebrity were pregnant. Or an unapproved sonogram. Right, then that in fact could become the basis for a publication of private facts claim, even though the person is a celebrity. So we're in this really interesting time. We used to know what the parameters were. Media used to not generally go outside those parameters. But today, because we do have a push to publish and because we have a lot of publishers out there, then courts are uh, reining things in a bit and deciding exactly what is newsworthy and what, what isn't. We're talking about newsworthiness. Maybe we can do a quick what's newsworthy, what's not. I'll fire off some questions. What do you say? Sure. Before you do that, though, let me give you a quick definition that from, would be helpful. Uh, from the restatement. So recall that the restatement says that information that is not of public concern is not newsworthy. And so there, it's very interesting because concern might seem like really important. Is this um, war or peace? Or did, exactly. Did someone, was someone harmed? Yeah, that sort of information. But that's not the way the restatement authors then define it. The restatement authors suggest that information that is of public concern is, in a sense, 
anything that the public is interested in. And so it lists off this quite long list of story topics. Uh, and then it says, and other information of more or less deplorable popular appeal. And so that seems like this incredibly deplorable popular deplorable appeal. popular appeal. And so in 1977, they write the definition for newsworthiness in this very expansive way. However, they do suggest that there is some limit to what is newsworthy. And what the restatement authors say is that something that is morbid and sensational prying for its own sake hmm. is not newsworthy. And so on the one hand, we have um, something of more or less deplorable popular appeal that's okay and can be published, but something that's morbid and sensational so prime for its own sake. So is okay, yes, we don't morbid. Yes, and we don't really know where that line is quite yet because the internet publishing is so new, at least in a legal sense. Uh, and so it's only been very recently that courts have had to try to decide how do we draw that line between what is newsworthy and what isn't. Why don't we start with the most literal morbid, a dead body? So a dead body is a very interesting question. Mostly in news, there's, there are ethics issues uh, involving the publication of a dead body, and most news organizations will not do it on ethics grounds. And out of respect for the family, because out of, of respect the for the family, audience. the children and readers at home. And so many times what um, journalists will say is that if it's not something that someone can see during breakfast, they don't want to publish it. Hmm. Uh, but, so a little d digestive test. Yeah, yeah, right. Ethically. Ethically. Um, but because of that, because there had been that sort of restraint on the part of media, courts really didn't have to decide much case, much of these questions, you know, involving whether or not there could be a privacy claim in a dead body. Well, within the past two or three years, uh, there was a case brought by a mother whose teenage child uh, had been pulled near death from an auto crash. And he's on a stretcher and he's reaching out for the person who is saving him. And there was a, a videographer for a website uh, that was there on the scene. And so he recorded this young man being pulled from the car, the mangled car. The young man reaches out for um, the rescuer and then dies. His mother, that videotape was then published on the internet. His mother brought a publication of private facts claim, I believe, although uh, it m was mostly an intentional or negligent infliction of emotional distress case, and a court decided that she had a valid claim. So very early on, it has not gone to trial yet, a court decided that in fact, there was a valid claim on essentially privacy grounds brought by the mother of an accident victim. Uh, so that, I think, suggests that maybe dead bodies might be protected. Was it that, was that a child? Maybe way. there was a... No, it was not a child. I can't adult. remember. It was, it was someone who was um, 18, 19, 20, around that age. There's also another very interesting case suggesting privacy within dead bodies, also decided fairly recently involving a prosecutor who showed an autopsy photo of a child from 10 or 15 years before to a journalist. I don't believe the journalist published the photograph, but I can't remember. I'm pretty sure the journalist didn't. And the mother of the child from 15 years before 
sued the prosecutor for showing the autopsy photo to the journalist. And that was a successful claim as well on privacy grounds, that the mother had privacy in the body of her dead child. You you think about journalism, what is most newsworthy? Maybe one of the images that jumps out is a wartime correspondent. Again, in the topic of morbidity or versus newsworthiness, how about a dead body when it comes to an actual military engagement? Sure, and so I think that that sort of level of publication would always be protected. Judges, I think, would hesitate to second guess a decision like that by mainstream media to publish something like that. These more recent cases, though, suggest that there might be some level of protection that judges are more willing to abide by depending on who the publisher of the information is and also the exact image that we're talking about. Okay, I'm gonna take things in a way less depressing direction. How about just awfully embarrassing shots? Let's say that I'm in my car making a, a bizarre expression with my face or, you know, of course I would never, but picking my nose. Is that, is, do, is there any privacy there? Is that newsworthy if it's just such a funny or, or bizarre image? So the restatement would likely say that yes, that it's newsworthy. That's one of those, something more or less deplorable popular appeal that, that people <laughs> laugh about, appeal. right? Um, that sort of thing. But because- In this, but, I think of these memes. So you, you're not a big social media consumer, but for many big, of us- Let me explain. I'm a big social media consumer. Not a publisher. I'm just not a publisher. <laughs> you know, yeah. I knew you were smart before I met you. <laughs> But, but some of these memes, it's just someone's face looking bizarre sure. and then people will publish their own sure. caption. I could just imagine what if I was one of those memes sure. making the most embarrassing or, or humiliating face or expression. So, so, so far there have been a couple of cases that I can think of involving memes. They've been unsuccessful intentional infliction of emotional distress cases. So, so far courts have been protective of memes, but the memes have never involved nudity or sexual information or something like that. And there are, so your suggestion that maybe something would be outside, so you're outside picking your nose or, you know, or there's a rip in the seat of your trousers, those sorts of things then are, uh, even the restatement suggests it's your tough luck for being outside. If people can or in fact see you. Or someone spills a coffee in my pants, but it looks like I Exactly. Had right, an right, accident. right. Yes. Now that could be the basis for a defamation claim if someone <laughs> suggested in a believable way that you had had an accident. But uh-huh. it can't be an invasion of privacy claim because you're out in public and no one is using special equipment to show you. At least that's the way the restatement would look at it. However, uh, there's a classic case and restatement example involving a woman who left a fun house. So she left a fun house at a county fair uh, and she walked on this grate and the grate blew up her skirt and exposed her underwear. Yes, exactly, and exposed her, exposed her underwear. There was a photographer there who snapped a picture of it, who was laying in wait to snap a picture actually like this uh, and published it. And she brought a successful publication of private facts claim and intrusion into seclusion claim against those journalists. So again, it's, I like to think of it, and this is the way I think the restatement looks at it too, is the more in control you are 
of yourself in public, you know, a stain on your pants, picking your nose, something like that, the less amenable a court would be to a privacy claim based well, on wait. that. What about this woman? Isn't she in control of where she walks? She does not know that there's going to be a poof of air that blows up her skirt. I guess one last topic. What about children? Mm -hmm. I mean, when I think of the press, I think they'll give a little more respect, a little more privacy to people's kids. I think that's right. And so traditionally, even then, uh, the children in the White House have been protected and the press corps will not go after uh, the children in the White House. What I but think, that's more of a courtesy rather than a legal Yeah, definition. so I, th I believe that, again, unless we're talking about nudity, sexual information, and that sort of thing, uh, that yes, at least in a legal sense, everything that a child in the White House does uh, would in fact very likely be newsworthy. But what I think is very interesting today and almost the next frontier in this area is parents who publish personal information about their children online. So for example, if you have a teenager or someone who's just about to become a teenager who's been diagnosed with um, some sort of mental illness, mm -hmm. uh, the parent might in fact go online and publish the diagnosis to everyone uh, in a way that makes the child completely identifiable and um, look seeking help but from yeah, others. But maybe a community forum, sure, exactly public right. community forum. So, you know, my child who has bipolar, yes. we're running into this issue he did this, mm -hmm. uh, it, looking for advice from other parents. That's exactly right. And so the reason for the publication uh, you know, is not sensational. The reason is to seek information from others and, and support. Well, what I think is very interesting is when that child turns 18 and when that child turns 21 oh, and actually goes out and wants to look for a job, can that child then bring some sort of action against that parent that has then that published that information? So give them some ability, some right to take down this information that exactly right that concerns be, them and that could be private right is private traditionally, uh, but then also could be impeding their ability to find find work. So I think that's one of those what next a frontier. I, yeah, one of good those luck ones. to whatever. Uh, innovative lawyer wants to bring that claim That's because right. you're running into parent guardian sure. rights sure. exactly. complicated technology yes. challenges as well. Why don't we, talking about technology, why don't we talk about, is there a distinction between mainstream publishers and quasi-publishers you know, the, the YouTubers out there or the Reddit posts. Sure. So the way I like to think about it is, uh, and what I suggest there are, are journalists and then something I call quasi-journalists. And the reason why I use the term quasi-journalists, it's not a legal term, is... Not yet. Uh, not yet, <laughs> right? I use it to delineate between people who abide by ethics codes uh, and people who, because of their professionalism, have to weigh the privacy interests in the information that's being published versus the news value of the information. That's what journalists do daily. Journalists find out things routinely that they do not publish, and they don't publish that information because of privacy interests and ethics interests, even though conceivably they absolutely could. So there's, there's people who are serving as a gatekeeper. They're adding... a a level of, of thought, yes. of, of discipline? Yes, and very often it can become an entire a dis, a discussion within a newsroom 
We found out this information. Should we, in fact, reveal it to the public? What are the privacy interests for the individual, the individual's family? Uh, what is the news value of the information? And which one weighs more strongly in ethics terms? They don't really look at that in legal terms as much as they do ethics terms because there's much more restriction on publishing in ethics in journalism than there is legally in so journalism. So the quasi, the the quasi-journalist that you're describing, this could be a, a YouTuber or a, an influencer who just shares her thoughts. Exactly. Or publishes, publishes video featuring someone else in a way that he or she doesn't even think, you know, is, might think, in fact, it could lead to clicks. So, um, so in a sense, what Gawker did, Gawker thought, rightly so, that by publishing this video of Hulk Hogan, a number of people would want to see it, and so published it in that way. And I believe if they'd had a discussion journalistically in that newsroom weighing the privacy of the individual versus the news value in the tape, they wouldn't have published it ethically. Uh, and if they decided to journalistically, what they should have done is put black boxes around Hulk Hogan's private parts, and there would never be a lawsuit today if they'd done that. Fascinating. Yeah. So it wasn't the act it was the exposure? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it might have been that the box may have had to have gotten larger uh, at certain points, but that's why I delineate between the two groups. Journalists do abide by um, ethics codes. If they don't, very often they're fired. Very often on the very first mispublication, they're fired if they don't abide by ethics codes. Quasi-journalists will publish interesting newsworthy information from picking up where maybe some of the mainstream journalists dare not tread sure and there could be so there is real benefit sometimes for publishers who don't so stridently abide by ethics codes there's an awful lot of information out there that the public would be interested in and that could in fact have some sort of ramification on society etc but so is there a difference legally? I mean, does the court system treat a quasi-journalist the same as, a, as the yeah. anchor on CNN? Sure. Yes, generally, although I believe that courts, or they should, right, under the Constitution. However, because courts are more hesitant to decide against the press because of the First Amendment, they may be less willing to, or they may be more willing to second guess a publication decision made by someone who doesn't abide by ethics codes. Are there, have there been some interesting cases involving quasi-journalists? I mean, well, beside I, the, the Hulk Hogan case. Sure, so I think, I think among those, I would say the video of the young man being pulled from the accident scene and his mother brought a claim against the website that published that and a court decided that she in fact did have um, a valid claim, at least a, a very early on in the case, but there was a, a valid claim early on in case. That, I think, is a decision not made ethically because um, I've not seen the video, but the way the court describes it, it seems quite graphic. Also, another example... Just gratuitous? Gratuitous? Gratuitous violence or gratuitous... I mean, it does sound like a poignant moment, like heart-wrenching sure. moment. Sure. Yeah, right. And yet, I don't... I think that if it had been mainstream media that published that, a court would not have decided the case against mainstream media. I could be wrong about that, but it shows you the level of protection that mainstream media might have for its news decisions because courts trust it so much. So there might be, there might not be a difference in the law, but a difference in 
the respect exactly. shown to that's, the That's exactly what I think. Also, another example is the Floyd Mayweather decision where he published a sonogram. There, I don't know necessarily if it were mainstream journalism, if the court would have decided the same. I think cons- probably so there because ESPN is mainstream journalism and the court decided against ESPN in the case involving Jason Pierre-Paul and his medical chart. All right, a quick break for those who are listening for MCLE credit. The code for this interview is 03-2719-032719. And now back to the interview. Maybe let's talk about some of the implications. So if the courts aren't treating them differently, but they're giving them a little, these quasi-journalists, a little less judicial respect, does that have an impact in then what mainstream journalists can do? Absolutely, because when courts write these decisions against publishers who are not mainstream media, they write them in a way that celebrates privacy. And by celebrating privacy, what those decisions do then is harm all media, mainstream and not. And so therefore, suddenly, if a non-mainstream publisher publishes, for example, a picture of a sonogram and a court decides that that is potentially an invasion of privacy because of HIPAA or something else, it's going to be very difficult for mainstream media to come in and say, oh, no, 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 we're different. We get to decide what is newsworthy and what isn't. And here we've decided that this sonogram is newsworthy. Suddenly you have then this precedent built up that then supports privacy and uh, undercuts um, publishing in a way that can harm mainstream media. I'm of two minds when I think about it because I'm thinking, okay, press freedom is so important. It's so crucial. And what our journalists are doing is so necessary. But then, you know, as a, as a lawyer, it seems to me it's nice that new journalists are kind of testing the limits, are testing what the legal principles actually mean. Mm-hmm. And that's the time that we're in right now. We're unsure of where the line is drawn between uh, what is information that is morbid and sensational prying for its own sake versus information that is then of more or less deplorable popular appeal we don't really know where that line is. And so therefore... Should we start that uh, Instagram account? Yeah, oh yeah, that sounds great. Except I'm not on social (laughs) media. Right. But it is a very interesting time because in the past, courts didn't have occasion to decide these cases. And today, of course, they are getting uh, increasingly the opportunity to be looking at these things and answering these questions in ways that they hadn't been answered before. Another area that I think is fascinating is it seems to me that there are publications that may not be exactly news. They may be more publishing bad information and hoping you'll pay to have them take it down. Yeah, so these would be, for example, websites that feature mugshots. They feature mugshots, but then have an ability for you to pay a certain number 
of dollars to, to have it removed. Right. And even mugshots, though, that just feature mugshots is also an interesting question. Mm-hmm. So there are two different types of, of websites. One just features mugshots of people who've been arrested for anything in your local community. Another is set up uh, in a way that in order to uh, you you have to pay then the website and they'll apparently take the mugshot down. What I think is very interesting about these websites is that mugshots have traditionally been newsworthy. So whenever there was someone who was arrested, from my recollection in my years of journalism, I would be able to then get a mugshot of the person who was arrested and we would then publish it on television. And it's great as well because there's no... Uh image gallery that you have to pay for the right. Yeah, exactly right, because you're getting it from police through Freedom of Information Acts. And uh, But I will say this, we only asked for mugshots of people who we felt the crime was newsworthy. And so today, what a number of websites have done is publish pictures of anyone arrested for anything. And you could imagine how horrible this would be if, say for example, you were arrested for an awful crime that you didn't commit and you're ultimately cleared on. That's exactly uh, I right. think of rape charges. Mm-hmm. And if you Google someone and you find their mugshot associated with a horrendous crime, that can be a, a real negative impact on someone's Sure, life. and it remains up because we don't, uh, at least traditionally, have a right to be forgotten in the United States. And so that information does remain on the internet. I think that's something that courts will be looking at in the future as well. But what some legislators have done is, in order to try to combat then, not that scenario, but the scenario of the 18-year-old who has public intoxication, for example, so who's been arrested for public intoxication, his mugshot will then appear on this website because there's no news judgment. Anyone's mugshot is then um, published in that way. What some legislatures have done now is they have made it against the law for police departments to reveal mugshots of people who've been arrested for uh, misdemeanor crimes, for certain misdemeanor crimes. And so in that sense... Is this in an effort to limit the societal impact? Absolutely. So they recognize that these websites exist that publish all mugshots and uh, they've decided to then combat it in the way that they can, and that is to tell police that they are not able to release then mugshots featuring people who've been arrested for low-level crimes. So a very interesting and very recent then way to try to combat those, those sorts of websites. But it wouldn't be tackled from the torts that we were describing earlier. It actually could be. Could be. Uh, and so there is, um, and this is again very, very early, early, but there has been a decision from uh, a court in Pennsylvania, a very low-level court in Pennsylvania, uh, that ordered a website to take down a criminal history report on a man because the criminal history report had come, I think, 15 or 20 years before. So the website revealed someone's criminal history from 15 to 20 years before, and the court ordered it to be taken down as no longer newsworthy. And so this too, then, is the wave of the future. Fascinating. And that's definitely in the right-to-be-forgotten realm. But you can imagine how, how limiting some information like that could be. 
for someone who really has changed or moved on with their lives. Absolutely. And that's actually the interest then that the restatement authors in 1977 uh, wrote. They used the example of Jean Valjean from Les Miserables and said that... He stole uh, a loaf of bread. He stole a loaf of bread. And in the restatement, uh, Javert, he then became mayor. And Javert then... And this uh, saintly character. Reveals, for those of us who haven't, yes, that's <laughs> who haven't right. seen it recently. And so, uh, and so someone else reveals his past history as a criminal. And the restatement author suggests that there could, in fact, be a right to privacy in that information, even though it was once public. Well... Professor, thank you for coming and answering some of our questions today. Certainly. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.